I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Evan Keeley, and we're talking about 20th century French composer Cécile Chaminade. She found enormous popularity in the United States and England with her piano miniatures and songs, but she also wrote for the orchestra and the stage. So we explore her musical characteristics and how she found her own success. Plus, stay with us to the end to hear a recording of Chaminade herself at the piano. Let's start this episode, Evan, with a quote from Chaminade herself that appeared in a Washington Post interview she did well over a century ago. She said, I do not believe that the few women who have achieved greatness in creative work are the exception, but I think that life has been hard on women. It has not given them opportunity. It has not made them convincing. A woman has not been considered a working force in the world, and the work that her sex and conditions impose upon her has not been so adjusted as to give her a little fuller scope for the development of her best self. She has been handicapped, and only the few through force of circumstances or inherent strength have been able to get the better of that handicap. There is no sex in art. Genius is an independent quality. The woman of the future with her broader outlook, her greater opportunities will go far, I believe, in creative work of every description. Now, Evan, that is quite a quote to have from a composer in a major newspaper in the Washington Post, and it says so much, doesn't it? Well, and we see these conflicts and paradoxes throughout her life, as we'll discover in this conversation. Yes, and that quote and several others we'll be mentioning were compiled in a biography on Chaminade by Marcia C. Trones from 1988. And stay with us to the end because we'll hear an actual recording of Cecile Chaminade at the piano. But Evan, start us off here. Where and when was Chaminade born? What was it like in her early life? John Cecile Louise Stéphanie Chaminade was born in Paris on the 8th day of August in 1857, uh, her parents were enthusiastic amateur musicians. Uh, her father worked for a major insurance firm, and the family was rather affluent. They owned a property just outside Paris. Uh, Le Vizinet was the name of the, the residence. And over the years, that actually became Cécile Chaminade's primary home for many years. And it was a place where there was a lot of music making happening and a lot of prominent people would come by. Georges Bizet made a visit to Le Vésinet in 1869. Cécile Chaminade would have been 11 or 12 years old at that point. And she got to play for him and they got to talk a bit. And he was quite impressed mm. with her musicianship. So you can imagine the effect this had on this this child, this girl, yeah. uh, meeting this uh, composer who is uh, 1869 in the final half dozen years of his life. She was probably already composing at that point. Uh, we do have a biography of her by her niece that was published uh, probably in the late 1940s, a few years after Cécile Chaminade's death. And her niece claims that Cécile Chaminade was already composing music by the age of seven, Mm -hmm. uh, we're not really sure about that, but clearly a precocious talent, both as a pianist and a composer from a very early age. And then uh, in the late 1860s, uh, she got to meet Félix Le Coupé, who was an instructor at the Paris Conservatory. He was also very impressed with her. He actually wanted to, her to enroll at the conservatory, but her father felt that this was not an appropriate thing for a young lady to be doing. 
She did, however, get private lessons with Le Coupé instead, as well as others, including probably uh, Benjamin Godard, another French composer of the late 19th century. Uh, not really clear exactly what their relationship was or how much they interacted, mm -hmm. but certainly he's an influence on her as well. There's even evidence she met uh, Franz Liszt at some point in the late 1860s, and he was also impressed with her playing and her musicianship. So clearly this is a, someone who, a very early age, child prodigy is not an inappropriate way mm -hmm. to describe her. Very dedicated, very talented, and clearly willing to showcase herself both as a performer, as a pianist specifically, and as a composer. Uh, 17 years old, she was among those who were at the disastrous first performance of Georges Bizet's Carmen at the Opera Comique Opera House in Paris in March of 1875. And over the years, she uh, remained a defender and admirer of Bizet's music. And there was a lot of, I think, a lot of bitterness on her part about how Bizet had been treated by mm. the musical establishment. It's so interesting to see, well, I can only imagine composers like Bizet and Liszt coming over and hearing her play and say, um, she's amazing. Is she going to the conservatory? What is she, is she going to? She needs lessons. She needs something because there is something here, not just one, but two major composers. And we see also the paradoxes in her upbringing. Mm -hmm. Clearly, her family is encouraging her musicianship to some extent. Someone taught her to play the piano. She's composing music. And early on in life, as a teenager, she starts giving these recitals at this home, Le Vésinet, their, their family home outside of Paris. It's a, it's a kind of a musical salon where all these, like we said, these famous people are showing up from time to time. And she's giving these recitals of mostly her own music at these performances. These are among her first, probably her first appearances among people outside of the family. And that becomes a template for her whole life. She does this throughout her career, touring around, we're going to be talking about more about this, John, touring around the world, performing her own music and uh, developing a following among people who admire and appreciate her. And that starts early on. And yet her father quite insistent that she not enroll in the conservatory. So we see these uh, contradictions in the way in which she grows up and in the environment in which her musicianship and as a composer and a performer is being nurtured. So let's take a look at some of her early music, one of which was composed before one of those recitals you mentioned. Maybe it was played on it. This is really her Opus 1A, the Opus 1 itself. I think it's lost. We don't have it, but 1A we do, and there's a recording of it, her Etude Printanière, or Premier Etude. Now, Evan, we hear a lot of Opus 1s from composers, especially on this podcast. And that one, it reminds me of many others. It's, it's simple, it's charming, a definite study of chord progressions and um, arpeggios. But really, more importantly, and like some of the other Opus 1s, it goes straight to the heart. There's something about it, and it grabs you. There's a, some kind of a it factor, even in something just like that. And maybe that's what Bizet and Liszt were picking up on, hearing her play even much younger than this. 
One of the things about Chaminade's development as a composer that's interesting is that she develops the fundamental characteristics of her style early on, mm -hmm. and they don't really change through the course of her life as a composer. You look at a composer like Brahms or Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, starting off the, the early works and the late works, there's, there's not always a huge difference. Contrast that with a composer like Beethoven, for example, very different uh, compositions mm -hmm. early in life versus late in life. So even in this Etude Printanière, this very first piece, you already hear the characteristics of her style. Like you said, John, the chord progressions, the mastery of harmony, and there's this lyrical quality. We'll, we'll be exploring this through the episode, this kind of singing quality in so much of her music, even, even a lot of it which isn't vocal music, like this piece, for example, has a kind of singing, this cantabile lyrical quality. Mm, cantabile, that singing quality, that's absolutely what I think we'll really hear in her music. And just a few years later, in 1880, so really in her early 20s now, she has her Opus 11, a piano trio, and these are some of her more still popularly performed works. And even just a few years later, there is a natural but also drastic rise in the maturity compared to that Opus 1A we just heard. The opening to this, it's just, um, it's arresting, and really it's just fun to listen to. There's always something happening. You're always being carried forward. It's just a joy to listen to, and we should be listening to this more often. Now, as you said, this would be indicative of the style she would carry through um, her career, and many artists have that. Some artists will paint one scene or, or one ob type of object thousands of times over their career, even just numbers even. And some go with the times and are constantly, um, constantly changing. What strikes me about this piano trio and her style is that these are just, there's just three musicians here playing and it sounds so full, so colorful and so imaginative. And I think for me, that's, that's a hallmark of a truly great composer being able to write something that sounds larger than its parts, especially when there's just two people playing. There's no lack of um, foundation. The bottom doesn't drop out. You don't feel like something's missing. And that comes from her being able to write so idiomatically for all of these instruments. And the effervescent and I think already pointillistic sound in the piano is, um, is coming through here. She really does have a gift for ensemble composing, John. I, I really yes. agree with what you're saying. One of the things that's interesting about that, too, with this piece and other works, she writes a huge number of smaller pieces. A lot of her music is works for solo piano or works for voice and piano in, in terms of the sheer number of compositions that she creates through the course of her life. To some extent, I think this piece, the Opus 11 Piano Trio, is maybe more in the realm of what we might call composer's music, composer writing for herself. Uh, a lot of the pieces that she writes are very short, they're very accessible, not to say anything in derogation of these wonderful works, but this is a much more expansive, a much more, dare I say, complex piece. Uh, and she's clearly quite in her element there as well as she is in the piano miniatures for which she's also so well remembered. Yes. Speaking of the miniatures you were just talking about, that Serenade Opus 29, for me, is a, is a clear example of a lot of the things we've been talking about. The cantabile style that you're talking about, the singing, there's no words. This is just piano, but this sounds like a song. Mm -hmm. 
It sounds like there's something more here, but it's just the piano. Definitely a characteristic of her style in most of her compositions, and one of the many things that makes her music so compelling. Some of the works are quite virtuosic. Some of them are on the more simple side. Some are in between. Sometimes there's a whole combination of all of that, like in her six concert etudes from 1886. So we're moving forward a little bit. Uh, I think one of these, her second one, Autumn, was, I think, um, one of her most popular ones. I mean, this is, again, this is just more music from her. I wish we could hear even more often. And I hope that this episode will be among the things that do garner more and more interest in this very fine composer. So far, we've learned and we know she's a great musician. She's a great composer. She received great private instruction from the Paris Conservatory. She's having some of these concerts at um, La Vésine. As great as the situation sounds so far... It's actually not as good as it seems because she was not allowed to actually attend the conservatory, which to this day is still a major part in developing a music performing career. Not the only one, but it's still a big one. You are studying with multiple teachers who have all kinds of different vantage points. You are performing with your friends, your peers. You are studying together. You're bouncing ideas off of each other. You're networking. And that idea continues for decades through a musician's career. She doesn't have access to any of that. And that really limits what she would do later on as well. You really see that throughout her career, John. She certainly has relationships with other composers. Uh, Amboise Thomas, for example, was someone who knew her and admired her. We talked about she probably studied at least briefly with Benjamin Godard. And yet, as you said, not going to the conservatory, not being in that environment where you're immersed in these relationships with other musicians, you really see that as a deficit throughout her career. You especially see it, I think, in the fact that she's very popular in a lot of places, as you and I will discuss, but Paris is a place where she never quite really gets a toehold in the musical scene to the extent that maybe a conservatory-connected composer would have. Yes, that's a good point. And she did find a lot of her success and premieres outside of Paris in the provinces, or as we'll learn, um, abroad as well. So she's getting into her 20s now, approaching, um, approaching 30, I think. And she's writing, and she does have some large-scale works. One is a concert stuke for piano and orchestra. Absolutely incredible. Another is an opera she wrote that was never quite premiere. Tell us about this. So La Sevillane uh, is a work that she wrote in the 1880s, uh, probably 1882. Uh, so that's when it was uh, first performed. There was a, it was a private performance at Le Visine, the family home. Uh, piano reduction. Uh, if, if there's an orchestration somewhere, I don't know where one can find it. But at that performance, she was at the keyboard. She must have had some friends performing. It's a one-act opera comique. So, you know, spoken dialogue, kind of like a German zingspiel, or you think of that, uh, that genre of 19th century French opera. And there was some talk about maybe getting a professional performance of this opera, but it never materialized. And it's not really clear why. You know, it's a huge commitment, of course, to make in terms mm -hmm. of expense and the press and so forth. And those are things where, I don't know, did she feel insecure about the piece? Did she feel like she wouldn't get the support she needed? Uh, was it too much of a headache? 
The only thing we know about the piece, the overture, was published in a two pianos version, and that's been recorded. I really want our listeners to uh, enjoy this performance of this overture mm-hmm. to uh, La Sevillane. It's really a, it's really a banger. Uh, I love this music, and it's yet another instance of this 19th century French fascination with all things Spanish, Bizet's mm-hmm. Carmen being the most obvious example. She's able to to draw upon that aesthetic. And again, it's easy for that to be this kind of uh, hackneyed, uh, oh, let's have a couple of rhythms here that sound Spanish. But she actually creates this really delightful and exciting music through that aesthetic. And I really would love to hear a full performance of this opera, but I don't know that that's even possible at this point, which seems like a shame. There's an interview she did many years later. She talks about some other opera that never materialized, and you almost get the sense that she forgets about this early opera. Yeah. And I'm not sure what's going on with that. Either way, it is a shame. And unfortunately, there's some details that we might know, but Chaminade herself requested that her her diary, uh, her journals, that that be destroyed after she died. And so thankfully that was done according to her wishes, but that also means there's all kinds of details we don't have. And unfortunately, no recording of this opera. Yeah. 1887, she is like 30 now, and this is when things take a turn, unfortunately, with the death of her father, and that put them in a very unfortunate financial position. I believe they had to sell their their home in Paris. So now they're in Le Vezine, I think, full time. And she has to turn to smaller compositions, things like song and those piano miniatures to make money. She can write those more quickly and she can get those published and people will play them as opposed to trying to put on a production of an opera that will require that will require a hundred people. So she has to make that turn to help the family survive um, financially. Right. And these uh, these short piano works in this era, this is the 1880s, of course, very marketable kind of a genre of sheet music, very mm-hmm. popular. And she, I think, had a real gift for being able to speak to that. Maybe it sounds crass to say it this way, but I don't mean it that way. It's She was able to really connect with that market. She mm-hmm. was able to create music that would be popular, that people would enjoy, and she doesn't sacrifice a really high-level aesthetic in doing so, in my opinion. No, no. She has a difficult time in Paris for a lot of the, you know, you can expect with either patriarchy, misogyny, and everything tied up deeply in the music world as well. She starts to get really popular outside of Paris in a place like London. Very popular, in part, I think, because of the savvy nature with publishing that you just mentioned. They are loving her music there. She goes there, I think it's 1892, and she makes yearly visits there, I think almost every year for a decade, and then very frequently until the 1920s. And they loved her there. She was playing especially the songs. They loved the songs. Queen Victoria admired her. She had... Chaminade out to Windsor Castle. She received a Jubilee Medal from Queen Victoria. And then even at the Queen's funeral, a work of Chaminade's was played, an organ prelude. Exactly. So you see this phenomenon throughout her career where she is the proverbial prophet uh, who can't be a prophet in her own country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paris is her hometown. That's the one place where she seems to have the most difficulty 
really making connections with the press and with the concert scene and with other musicians. Other places in France, she's quite popular. And you see this, you know, these these trips to London where she's very much appreciated. Yes. As we said, especially for the songs. So let's take a look at this. And I'll just be honest right away, Evan. I love her songs. Great stuff. Yes, I had to study a lot of German art song in school, a lot of Schubert, a lot of Schumann. I do like it. I don't actively listen to art song all the time, just full disclosure. But when I hear something and it catches me, I definitely listen to it for a while. And whatever she's doing with song is something I really enjoy. All of these, again, that it factor I said at the beginning where it just grabs you. Yeah, that's present in her songs. One that I love is Ronde de Moore. I think is how I would say it, Evan, in, uh, in French. I love this one especially. I love it. For me, it just grabs me right away. She writes very well in this milieu of the French melody. You think about composers like Gabriel Fauré, Camille Sasson, Jean Massenet, Emmanuel Chabrier, these composers of that era and the generation before her who were writing these works for voice and piano. And so many wonderful works. It's a great body of literature. And her contributions to this genre, in my opinion, are of just as good a quality as you'd find with a composer like Massenet or Faure. Mm-hmm. Maybe also as I'm thinking about this and as I've been listening more, I, I do tend to like more of um, French art song rather than German. Sometimes Schubert is just a little too... Um, we don't have to be depressed all the time, I think, when we're listening to It's a very different song. aesthetic. Yes. Uh, one, one can even stereotype, you know, the, the German lead is a very serious thing, and the French melody is so lovely. Uh, and, you know, that, that's, a, that's a simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah. But as I said, I think uh, that Cécile Chaminade had a real understanding of the potentialities of that aesthetic and was able to create really fine works. One song that was, or melody, I should say, that was one of her most popular, I think, was La No d'Argent. This is from 1891. And we should also say this is all in French, and Chaminade speaks only French. And she's in London, but she can't even communicate with him directly. She speaks no English. Right. This is a beautiful song. We'll also have these in a playlist with other works of hers on the show notes page at um, classicalbreakdown.org. But as we said, there's a lot of stuff that's missing that's not been recorded. And it wasn't just London. She went to places like Germany, Austria, Belgium, Poland, Hungary, Romania. I mean, she went to a lot of places. And everywhere she went, the people loved her. That's one of the most important things. She was really loved by the people who would go to her concerts. But with critics, it wasn't always that way. They tried to deride her music as feminine, uh, whatever that means. And it's only worthy of the salon music as part of a domestic life as as a woman. All kinds of uh, unfortunate things start to get pushed against her. Her appearance is written about a lot, especially, I think, in Germany, how she dares to be single, all kinds of things that she has to put up with. And this phrase, salon music, I think is worth exploring a little more deeply. The word Mm -hmm. salon in the 19th century tended to imply a group of intellectuals and high achievers coming together to share their ideas. And as you get into the late 19th and into the 20th centuries, 
it takes on this pejorative kind of tone, this sense that it's this uh, bourgeois recreation, it's these amateurs who don't really know quality, and it's especially associated in the minds of some with women's pursuits, and therefore, in this misogynistic milieu, there's this there's this derogation that's associated with quote unquote salon music. Oh, that's not serious music. Yes. That's not high art. That's just a bunch of nice ladies gathering around to entertain one another with these pretty things. So when we hear critics calling her music salon music, I think that a lot of them are evoking that very same set of attitudes. And it's really a, a, a handicap that she struggles with professionally through her whole career, trying to be seen as someone to be taken seriously, trying to be seen as someone who's creating art that is worthwhile. And there's this misogyny that's pervasive in these responses to her that we see, especially in the press. And it's contrasted, as you said, John, with the fact that she's traveling. She goes as far as Greece and Turkey in her in her tour, uh, and she's greatly appreciated wherever she goes by audiences. Yes. And we're going to get into a little bit more on this right after this. Okay, Evan, so digging into this a little bit more, let's look at a review for a piece we mentioned earlier, that concert stuke for piano and orchestra. It's a shorter work. It's not a full concerto. It's more fantastical. It's rhapsodic. It's less than 20 minutes. And here is a review from a critic who called it a work that is strong and virile, perhaps too virile. And that is the reproach I would be tempted to address it. For me, I almost regretted not having found further those qualities of grace and gentleness that reside in the nature of woman, the secrets of which she possesses to such a degree. This is a, almost a mild one to one we'll read in a second. But using, of course, her gender against her, darn if you do, darn if you don't, um, you're never going to win kind of thing. Yes, how dare she uh, write something that's not this dainty, feminine, passive kind of thing. It gets worse. A New York Evening Post critic wrote after a Carnegie Hall concert, Her music has a certain feminine daintiness and grace, but it is amazingly superficial and wanting in variety. But on the whole, this concert confirmed that the conviction held by many that while women may someday vote, they will never learn to compose anything worthwhile. That is, I mean, it's it's almost insane to read that actually in print, and this was after a Carnegie Hall concert that she gave. Obviously, it's 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 disgusting and it's not true. And this is what she would be she would have to deal with. And I think it tells us, Evan, that they were afraid. They're afraid of her actually upsetting the patriarchy, the status quo. Yes. They were threatened. You don't write about the anthill in your backyard. You know, you're not afraid of that. It's an obnoxious comment, but as you said, John, it's it's sort of prophetic. This is 1908. So well, women may vote someday, but they'll never compose music that's worthwhile. Well, 1908, you know, uh, women got the vote in this country in 1920. So, you know, I think this critic could see which way the wind was blowing. And there's, a, as you said, John, there's an air of fear about what mm -hmm. these critics are saying. They're trying to shut her up because there's a power that's coming from her and other women in this era that some people seem to find threatening. Yes. So we can say some positive things about this piece, but maybe not too much because as I've been listening to this, I think I actually may do a, an actual episode on this piece itself, but I don't see a single reason why this isn't programmed as much as any other similar type of piece, even today, I mean. I'd love to see more uh, ensembles performing this music. 
It's it's a wonderful work, but a very original kind of piece. Mm -hmm. The extent to which this is also composer's music, as I was talking about with the piano trio, is uh, a question in my mind. One of the things I find interesting about the piece is its title. Why does she give it a German title, Concertstück? Mm -hmm. Why doesn't she call it uh, Mosso de Concert, a piece de concert? Why not a French title? Is she trying to evoke a more Germanic aesthetic? Is she trying to... I I'm not sure what she's trying to do with the title. I'm not sure either whether it's a seriousness type of thing or a localization type of thing, but um, that is, it is interesting, and it's something that I guess we just won't know. Another work she wrote for orchestra was a ballet symphony, and I think it's called Kalirho. If I don't know if that's exactly how it's pronounced. Um, this went unpublished, but a suite was published. And again, this is another work like the Concertstück that really should be played. I mean, I'm, I listen to it and I don't find any convincing reason why it wouldn't be played. Caliroe, I think is how I'd pronounce it. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if that's correct. It's uh, evoking a uh, story from Greek mythology. Uh, and that was, of course, a popular set of themes in that era. And yeah, this is another piece that you really should get more attention. It was a huge success in its performance in Marseille when it was first performed and uh, got performed quite a bit over the following 20 years. And then where did it go? Uh, I would really like to see a revival of this music. Yes. And there is another work that included orchestra that is one that I think many listeners might recognize if they listen to WETA Classical, her concertino for flute and orchestra. Every flute player knows this as well, so much that it's just called for them the Chaminade. That's what a lot of musicians uh, do for these pieces. And it would keep her name alive through the next century, really in just this one aspect. And this is... An extraordinary work. I love it. And we do play it on, on, the, on WTA Classical, but um, one that especially kept her name alive. And it's, again, a, a wonderful example of a lot of the characteristics of her style. There's that singing quality, those memorable melodies, which are beautiful without being shallow. Ya-da-da-da-da, ya-da-da-da-da-da-da. Everybody hears this piece, and it's just so appealing. And yet it's a very elegant and uh, really sophisticated piece of music. Also quite a difficult thing to compose. This was her one commission from the Paris Conservatory. They wanted a, a competition piece. So it's a very virtuosic flute part. And it's very easy, first of all, to write badly for an instrument that you don't play. I don't think she was a flute player, even on an amateur no, level. No. Clearly knows how to write for the instrument. And it's also quite easy to write something that's just rather shallow, very showy, very uh, pyrotechnic, and yet not really all that interesting. And she doesn't fall into that trap either. It is a very virtuosic flute solo mm -hmm. in this piece, but it, it never takes on, to me, it never takes on this air of just, uh, you know, a lot of fast notes for the sake of it. It's really uh, very appealing. The musical structure of the piece really works. It really carries you along. It has a wonderful beginning, middle, end kind of progression to it. And the flute writing is uh, virtuosic, but it's also just very appealing to listen to. It's a really great piece, and I'm really glad that we play it on WETA Classical as we do. Hopefully we'll play more of her music in the years to come. Looking now at her life as she is in her, um, in her 40s, she does get married 
doesn't she? But it is on her terms to, if I can pronounce it correctly, Luis Mathieu Carbonell. This is in August 1901. He was 20 years older than her, apparently an older friend of hers. And she dictated the terms of this marriage. They would live separately. They would not be living together. He could, from time to time, visit her and travel with her on a, on a tour. And there would be no physical aspect to this um, relationship. So really interesting there, presumably maybe for societal reasons, doing this marriage. It's really a fascinating puzzle why she enters into this relationship. I get a strong sense that they care about one another very much, that they appreciate and support one another professionally and personally, but why get married? Uh, it's not really clear if, if she's trying to fit into a social expectation, why have such an unconventional marriage? So, you know, as you said, John, she's doing this on her own terms. Cecil Chaminat is a, in some ways a kind of a conservative person. She's definitely a iconoclastic in many ways, and yet in some other ways, she's a very private person. She doesn't uh, abrasively sort of thrust herself into situations where uh, she might be unwelcome, but she does take a lot of risks. So this marriage is yet another puzzle in her fascinating personality and, to me, raises more questions than it answers. Her husband would become terminally ill in 1903. He died in 1907, and she did take care of him during those years, which did mean she was composing less. And after his death, in an interview with the Washington Post, here's what she said regarding marriage. She said, Marriage must adapt itself to one's career. With a man, it is all arranged and expected. If the woman is the artist, it upsets the standards, the conventions, the usual arrangements, and usually it ruins the woman's art. I feel that it is difficult to reconcile the domestic life with the artistic. A woman should choose one or the other. She must have freedom, not restraint. She must receive aid, not selfish, jealous exactions and complaints. When a woman of talent marries a man who appreciates that side of her, such a marriage may be ideally happy for both. So finding mutual benefits, I think, in that is what she may be describing. Yeah, I, I, it's a fascinating comment in an interview. And I don't know if she's describing what this is about a year after her husband had died. Mm -hmm. Is she describing their marriage or is she describing what she wished their marriage had been? I'm more inclined to think the former. But again, an unanswered question. Fascinating set of questions. Yes. People might be wondering, we've mentioned Carnegie Hall, we've mentioned the Post, the Washington Post. She gained a huge following in the United States well before she arrived. And a question as to, well, why did this happen? Maybe similar to, um, to London, a, an obsession or love for her songs. Also because her music was being published, I think, in these uh, periodicals directed towards women and playing the piano and singing, especially in the, in the United States at this time. That's a woman's domestic activity. And with her compositions being these in these periodicals that may have grabbed uh, the attention of, of a lot of these um, women who are playing and are singing. And these Chaminade clubs started popping up all over. And there were a lot of music clubs in general. And I think in the United States at that time, I think over 200 had her name in it. And they were writing letter after letter to her manager um, or to whomever to get her to come to the United States. And it's weird, too, because of the sort of dual nature of how she was received. You see, as you said, John, these Chaminade clubs, very popular, especially among American women. And yet, even in those situations, in the press in the United States, just as she had bad press 
uh, in Europe and so forth. She's uh, starting a tour in the United States, and some critic writes about her as she's on her way to the United States, and she said that this critic writes, only a favored few will be able to hear her play because she's refused to appear in public. Her performances will all be given at the musical recitals of multimillionaires. Chaminade's excuse is that physically she's not strong enough to endure the fatigue of a concert season. Now, I don't know why this critic would have written this about her when, in fact, that is not what she did. No. Uh, was this just a brazen lie or was the person, you know, genuinely misinformed? But again, this is yet another example of the ways in which the organs, the instruments of societal expectations are aligned against her and how she's nevertheless able to overcome that. Yeah, it is strange because maybe it's not the we don't there's no internet and it's not um around forever to to write something like that because yes, the maybe the critic is right. Musicians famously who refuse to play in public and are too weak to perform, famously they start and end their North America tours with Carnegie Hall appearances <laughs> and then they go to the most prestigious stages in the country like Orchestra Hall in Chicago and Symphony Hall in Boston. And actually, I did not know she had played in Boston because um, when I read that, it grabbed me because I'm actually holding it right now. I have a piece of the original flooring from Boston Symphony Hall from 1900. They replaced it in 2006, I think. And um, I got a, I have a piece of the original flooring, and I'm hoping may, this might be a piece that she actually stepped on herself. Um, Entirely possible. Yes. Even in that era, this is, you know, the 1910, 1920s, early 20th century, Boston Symphony Hall, a very prestigious venue. Carnegie Hall, as you mentioned, John, uh, Orchestra Hall in Chicago. She's really hitting the, the major American musical venues, as well as giving private performances throughout the United States. And these Chaminade clubs cropping up everywhere are a testimony to how well she was appreciated. And I can say, Evan, I think we appreciated her in a very American way. There is this, um, do you call this an anagram? Uh, Shaminade. C, concentrated and concerted effort. H, harmony of spirit and work. A, artistic ideals. I don't know. I feel like that's very, a very American way to appreciate her. Yes, yes. She had a, she had a real fan base in this country. Mm-hmm. And what she was playing was basically... What we started with is in this episode, those early recitals where she's playing all her music, that's what she's doing on these tours and in the U.S. She's playing her solo works. She's playing the melody, the, the art song that she was composing. She was there for, I guess, a few months. She started and ended it in Carnegie Hall. And almost all of the venues were sold out. The only one that had some empty seats was her repeat visit and concert in, in, uh, in Philadelphia. So clearly a huge success. Yes, and she got to go all over the country as far west as Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Chicago, Cincinnati, St. Louis. She got to go to Washington. She got to meet President Roosevelt and the First Lady. It's easy to throw around the cliches and call this a star-studded kind of event, but she certainly was very much appreciated in the United States. Now into her 50s, I believe, um, in 1912, her mother dies. That's a hard moment, of course, for her in her life. World War I starts two years later. In between, in 1913, she became the first woman composer to receive the Chevalier title for that um, Legion of Honor in France. And about this time, Evan, it seems like uh, with the end of World War I, as she's approaching her um, 60s now, 
she writes very little, if at all, for the rest of her life, right? She she retires and she's slowly herself even mentioning feeling like she's falling into obscurity, um, being gone and forgotten. Yeah. During the First World War, she dedicated her time to caring for soldiers in a convalescent home. She retires to the French Riviera. She's really not composing or performing or touring at this point. She's got more and more health problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's got a real difficult situation with her foot. And as you said, John, she's really feeling like people are starting to forget her. Yes. But in 1942, she received a very nice letter from her American friend, Irving Schwerke, who was a musician and a critic and is someone who was also very supportive of George Walker, as we learned in an episode. She replied, writing, I just received your exquisite letter, which was for me a great joy and comfort. I see that you haven't been forgetting your musical friends, and they're deeply grateful. Not to be forgotten, to live in the heart and memory of those who understand you, that is the supreme consolation for an artist. Thanks to all who remember. And then two years later, in 1944, she would um, die. But what a what a way to, just reading the words that she writes, really confirms the kind of artist that she was, to um, live in the heart and memory of those who understand you. That is the consolation um, as an artist. And that's just um, really just uh, fantastic to read from her. And I think she's now being revivified in the hearts and minds of those who understand her. And it's gratifying to see more and more attention being given to her music, more and more performances. I hope this episode, as I said, will be part of that uh, because she really wrote music that is worth remembering. Yes. And we'll have some more information and everything on the show notes page. But maybe we can give Shaminat herself the last word. Here she is in an actual recording from 1901 playing the Courant from her Three Ancient Dances, Opus 95. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.